Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, today I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the podcast and the Naropa community, Venerable Panyavati. She is visiting Naropa as the honored lens lecturer, speaking with the community and sharing her deep wisdom with us all. So thank you for meeting with me today and being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. We just finished the breakfast with the Lens Foundation and I have a jam-packed afternoon and evening at Naropa. You do have a jam-packed evening. I do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we like to just get as much out of you as you can. Actually, we were supposed to speak yesterday, but there was a blizzard that happened. So I really appreciate you redefining your schedule to speak with me. So thank you again. You're welcome. And here is the honored lens lecture. How is that going for you? Oh, it's just wonderful. You know, we have this notion of what we think honor is, but Mm. it's not like that. You know, it's good people coming together around central ideas of how we can serve one another and sharing them. And so that's the honor, to be able to share what's needed in the world, what's being done in the world, and help each person find their place. Okay, so it's like honoring the information instead of like yeah, the yeah, person. Yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Awesome, so you're like highlighting something. I really appreciate that. So after a bit of research of reading about you, I've realized you've been a busy person. And it's just very awesome to see that. And could you just let us know like what type of organizations you're involved in, the type of work you're doing at this moment, and kind of like what excites you? What excites me is really serving others. We have three organizations. We have Treasure Human Life Foundation. We have Heartwood Refuge, and we have Embracing Simplicity Buddhist Hermitage. Mm. And the three kind of work together because some people are interested in social service. Some people are interested in spiritual practice. Some people, you know, and to be able to be available for people around their different interests. It takes different uh, organizations, you know, to be able to hold the container in a way that would be meaningful to the people who would come. Oh, that's kind of nice because you see what people thrive in and then you're generating an organization in such a way that people feel most called to do. So you're like allowing them to do their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes people say, Pony, why are you all over the place? But it's not that. We're so multifaceted. You know, I'm not just one thing. I mean, I was mother. (laughs) I was wife. I was employer. I was, you know, you're never just one thing. Mm. And so trying to establish or build a container that allows people with their varied interests to be of itches, skills and abilities to Mm -hmm. be able to come in. It helps to meet the total needs of a person. Yeah. You know, so some need some help around social areas, some around spiritual practice. You know, some just need a friend, some need a place to hang out. How do you create (laughs) something that meets all those needs? And Mm. so when people come to Heartwood Refuge, for instance, we have a Zen Dharma Hall, we have a sort of a secular Dharma hall. We have a Tibetan Dharma hall, you know, where you can feel comfortable. We have a amused meditation <laughs> center where you can put the band on and, yeah. and see how your brain waves are doing. 
Really? We have silent spaces. We have wow. talking spaces. You know, and if you walk through there and you're trying to do a silent meditation, you're saying, their talking is bothering me. That's your practice. Or go to the other side of the building. You know, so mm. many times when people are coming there, they have a narrow focus and expectation. Yeah. And what I love about our center is that we're broadening our compound, if you will. We're broadening people's capacity to expand their own center of peacefulness and at the same time honor and value people who may be different, who may do things differently. Yeah. So many diverse ways of practice you have going on. Yeah. I really like it. And, you know, they talk about the Dharma having 84,000 Dharma gates. You know what I mean? Like that was just a big number (laughs) in 500 B.C. Uh, But what it means is that each person has their own path to their freedom, their liberation. And you need to find out what that is. Some people only heard the Buddha give one Dharma talk. Or maybe he only said one phrase to them. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't have all of these written texts and all of that. And so we know it doesn't take all of that. But find what you need to find your own freedom. That's the important thing. And so trying to create a container where people can investigate themselves to know oneself is to know the Dharma. So that's what I'm trying to do. You just need the spiritual spark, but it's ultimately you to maintain the flame. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Cool. So you loosely just spoke about your previous life before Buddhism. What was the original spark that made you want to dive into Buddhism? Oh, so some of, some of your listeners not, might not be able to get with this. Nevertheless, it's my experience, and uh-huh. so it is what it is. But I was a Christian pastor, and I had followed the Christian path almost my whole life, ever since I was about six years old, okay. just drawn to that. And so it wasn't like just reading a book with your parents making you go to church every Sunday. Yeah. I mean, I was really into it, and I had this profound experience when I was six, and I went and I shared it with my pastor, and he just sort of didn't know what I was talking about. So I had another one when I was 13, and I went back to him again. Mm -hmm. And again, he told me then, oh, that passed away with the apostle. So I knew he couldn't help me. So I was looking for somewhere to go. And my sister said, you know, there's people they meet in storefronts, you know, not real churches, but they meet in storefronts, and they're called Holy Rollers. And she said, I'm going to take you over there. And I went over there, and I'm like, I found my peeps. Mm -hmm. You know, something was happening. It was real. It was dynamic. And there I was nurtured. And at time, I I won't say I outgrew. But I was feeling like the Buddha said there must be more, you know, and that led me into a charismatic environment and a deep dive into the Bible itself as a living experience. And then I again felt like I hit a glass ceiling and I looked after 15 or 20 years of practice and I was still stuck in Romans 8. The things I would do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I still do. You know, Mm. who can deliver me? I believed that I could come up to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus. And I'm saying, like, well, how do we do that? How do we become like a living Jesus or living Christ, if you will, in the world? How do I bring up my light, my inner light? Yeah. And that was my cry. So I went into a deep time of prayer, just trying to search out this answer. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I was calling on God at that time, and I was saying, you got to help me, yeah. you know, because I have no <laughs> problems with you. My problem is with people, you know. Yeah, relating. And I had a vision, and in this vision, mm-hmm. Jesus and I were in the bride chamber, and people were calling my name. He said, you stay here. I'll go see what they want. And while he was gone, I looked and there was a door. And I said, well, when did that door get to our bedroom? Because the bride chamber is sort of like married to the, yeah, you know. And so I opened that door. 
this is all in vision, you know. Vision means I was not asleep. That's mm-hmm. what that means. Uh, it was like a dream, but I was not asleep. Yeah. And I opened that door, and it was a little classroom with a kindergarten table and chair and dust piled up on it. There was another door. I opened that door, and it was a big room with a silver table and a scale. And there was a, not a third door, and I opened that door, and it was an alley. had a Budweiser beer light flashing. Mm-hmm. It had cobblestone, a manhole, dank, dark kind of sense, foreboding kind of sense, and had snakes and frogs. So I closed that door, (laughs) went back through the big room with the silver table and the scale, closed that door, went back to the little classroom, like kindergarten chair and table, closed that door, and I was back in the bride chamber. And when I got back, Jesus was there. I said, Lord, when did that door get to our bedroom? He said, oh, my name was Diane. Then, oh, Diane, it's been there all along. But you couldn't see it because of the brightness of my camera. Countenance. Now you walk through that door and I'll take care of the people that call you from the living room. And he went on to explain to me what each room meant. First being yeah. the school of Sophia and had not been in there for a long time. Yeah. Had a lot of growing. The next room was everything I learned would be weighed and measured. It would fill that whole room, the little bit that I learned from that small mm-hmm. room. Behind the third door was the alley where people spin out, go nuts, whatever. You yeah. know, and that I didn't have to worry, I didn't have to be afraid to search outside of what I knew to get more knowledge and understanding. And so that was it. That next day, that was on a Saturday, that Sunday, I took my congregation to a friend's church and I left them there. I said, I can't take you with me because I don't know where I'm going. But the one in whom I believe told me to walk through that door. And that was how it happened. You know, so right away, the first person I encountered was a Buddhist, right? And he was trying to give me this book on dependent origination. You know, that's the wheel of life, the wheel of samsara, you know, and it has the animals and monster with teeth holding the wheel. And I looked at that, and I Uh said, that must be from the devil. And so I wouldn't even open the book, you know. uh, And it took uh, 15 years for the Dharma to come back around to me. Mm. But by that time, I had been into everything. I've been into unity. So I've been into science of mind. I've been into shamanism. I've been into Taoism. I've been everything. And I loved everything that I touched. But shortly after I got in, involved, I would hit that same glass ceiling. Interesting. And then I was ready for the Dharma. And I was introduced to the Dharma by my Taoist master. I was over in China, and, and I was meeting our grandmaster. Mm-hmm. And he just took one look at me and said, Buddhism is for you. I said, no, no, no. I looked at that <laughs> yeah, first, and I'm just not interested in that at all. I yeah. love this Taoist stuff, you know, these yeah. pithy sayings, you know, like Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. I'm like, who yeah. comes up? What kind of mind comes up with this stuff? Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted. And he said, no, Buddhism is for you. And he took me over to a small Buddhist monastery. Monastery. And there he was uh, the 16th patriarch of the Longman Dao School of Complete Enlightenment. And mm-hmm. so he took me over there and they ordained me. He said, when you get back home, mm-hmm. you go find a Buddhist center. He told me to go oh. to a Chan center. And I got back. I couldn't find a Chan center. Oh, well, I found them, but they all spoke Chinese. And so I went to a Tibetan center instead. And I loved it because I was into praise and worship and all of that. Instead of one God, and I had whole lots of holy beings, you know. So I was like in hog heaven, right in my element. Yeah. You know, but then one day when I was leaving the temple, I saw a lone Theravada monk walking down the street. And he reached in his Buddha bag, uh-huh. and he pulled out a copy of the Majima Nikaya, and he gave this to me as, mm-hmm. as a gift. And that changed my life. I, as I began to read it, the foundational teachings of the Buddha, I felt like I could literally eat the pages out of the book. 
And so that's how I came to it. It was kind of circuitous, but yeah. but I'm here. <laughs> wow, what a what a beautiful journey. Thank you for sharing. I agree. Buddhism is very digestible. Yes. Very relatable. It's really easy to understand. And I can see why you were a little like, whoa, this, there's a demon on here because they do explore demons. They don't like say they don't exist. They do exist. And they like to, they want to know about it. They want to know about suffering. They want to know about happiness. They want to know about meditation, mindfulness, mind powers, like yes, to understand do. the holistic view of spirituality of like suffering exists. Now what? You know and I mean? and even when you're talking about hearing the cries of the world, I mean, like, what world are we talking about? Because mm. there are, there are many worlds, and there are many ways that we can uh, bring light into dark areas. Yes. So when people come to my center in North Carolina, I tell them, you better be on your best behavior. Uh, you know, because I have a whole a lots of beings who've come there yeah. to hear the dominant. They're not all human, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so it's, it's a wonderful experience. But here's the thing and how, how we are affected. You know, mm-hmm. I don't care what word you use if you don't want to call, you know, devas and, and demons. That's fine. No problem with that. But just know that we are not at the top or the bottom of the pecking order for life. So people ask me sometimes, well, do you believe in ETs? Of course I do. Do you think in this whole gabillion universes that we are the... (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) You know, I'm going to look at you like you have four eyes if you don't believe in them. (laughs) You know, it's not to say I want to have a relationship with them. You know, maybe every species and every category or classification of being, you know, should work well Mm -hmm. in their own. Uh, And if they have enough strength, they have enough light, they have Mm -hmm. enough power, Mm -hmm. then that vibration penetrates dimensions and maybe they can work and serve on, yeah. on other dimensions but don't try to go on somewhere if you don't have the goods you know yeah. could you get a good whooping <laughs> yeah there are frequencies that do exist yeah. that are yeah. within the human spectrum yes <laughs> another thing i just wanted to say was you were talking about your dream and the scale in the egyptian legends they talk about weighing the heart to the feather of truth. Yes. And when you're talking about the scale, that's what I was I was seeing. I was seeing like you're talking to Jesus and Jesus is like, here's a scale. And like when you pass away, they weigh your heart. Mm-hmm. So if you've been a truthful person, they weigh it against truth. Oh, that's and so I, beautiful. I love that. It's like, it's a little scary. You're like, oh man, was I truthful? Oh gosh, that's so, that's so awesome. I'm giving a talk tonight on the heart of gold. So I'm going to let you refresh that for yeah. me when we go off the air. And I'm yeah. going to share that tonight. You know, the way I understood it at the time was not, to be afraid to learn from outside, from sources outside of Christianity, mm-hmm. because he said everything would be weighed and measured on that scale, that a just weight was yeah. his delight, you know, mm-hmm. and that gave me the confidence to be fearless in my pursuit, yeah. you know. Yeah, confidence really helps when you're pursuing something, and, and the fact that you were able to just like walk your congregation over and be like, here you go. I'm yeah. gifting you with these people. Yeah. Please guide them. Like, I don't know where I'm going and I just don't feel confident enough to like lead them, but I feel mm-hmm. confident enough to walk away. Mm-hmm. And that was really beautiful to hear. Yeah. You know, that was probably my first, you might say test, you know, because yeah. we have this pride of life, you know, but I was on a search for something and I didn't know what, and here was this wonderful opportunity, you know, to find out what. Mm-hmm. And so it was worth everything that I had and I was pretty well known then so to walk away from it was a big thing to other people but it was it was nothing to me interesting okay 
So we do have a topic today that we want to talk about today. And you, I you, thought I was on it. <laughs> no, we, we definitely are, but I would, I would like to go deeper. And I just want to let people know what it is. And you sort of said it. It's, we're calling it hearing the cries of the world and responding with compassion and power. And so in your opinion, what are the cries of the world? And you loosely hit on multiple versions of the world, but in the world that we all bounce around in, what do you think the cries are? It's recognizing that in all conditions existence that there's a basic discomfort and unsatisfactoriness. And that's yeah. because, you know, we've created a world. I mean, you know, there is the world as it is and there's the world as we see it or understand it and know it. Yeah. And all of that comes from our own perceptions from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So when I actually see something, I'm not really seeing it as it is. I'm seeing it as I am, you know, and I decide what that is in front of me. So five people can be seeing the same thing and they come away with different versions of what they just saw. Or they can be hearing the same thing and they come away with differences in what they thought yes. they heard. Yes. You know, because it gets filtered through our own perceptions. Yeah. And so in our condition, when we haven't come to know the intrinsic Buddha nature and that hasn't mm -hmm. been self-revealing to us, then there is going to be uh, necessarily a kind of grief and sadness and even covetousness for the world because we think we are lacking in something. And so we're looking out there to find that which would make us complete and whole. Yeah. And say, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to turn around and peel back the layers. It's all mm -hmm. right there. Yeah, the fractal nature of people's psyche yeah. is it's scary sometimes because people can like trip stuff up. They can bring in external baggage that are coming from different sources or past experiences and overlaying that with a current experience that maybe, you know, may have some like really good intentions, but they've diluted it with something else or the different perspectives. What I've heard that's really awesome is the photons that are hitting my eyes will never go into yours. So everything that I'm seeing is uniquely different compared yes. to you. All the photons yeah. going in your eyes are yours. Mm -hmm. And so the the reality of nature is how you discover it through your perceptions and all that. And plus, essentially, all information is neutral until you internalize it. That's right. And, you know, he tells us that mind is chief, mind made of we. So whatever we think and ponder yeah. on, that becomes the inclination mm -hmm. of the mind and that deepens or concretizes the perceptions that we have. And then that's so how we <laughs> basically create our own reality. Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so therefore, it is up to us to create the reality in which that resonates with us the best. And so spirituality has these tools and these mechanisms and these things to help us understand and to go deeper inside and to regulate emotions and thoughts. And because the monkey mind is just going to come and go, you know, yeah. like, yeah. but you don't have to like ride that wave. You can go around it. You can go under it or, you know, you maybe ride a little bit and just bail. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can penetrate it. Or you can just simply through your own practice, just like peace be still. I mean, I get that yeah. saying Ooh. 100%. I like you know, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that comes through training. So he gives us all these methods and ways to work with deconstructing the structure of appearances for us and reconstructing in a way that we're not seated at the center of our life, 
or at the center of all we see. We're just one dot on the whole spectrum. You know, mm. and when you know that space, we can allow things to be as they are. If we can do something about it, yeah. we do. If we can't, we know it's relativity, and we also know it's mm. conditionality. You know, that you leave it alone is going to change in a minute one way or the other anyway. Yeah. You know, so we don't get too distressed about things. And there'll come a time that we won't get distressed at all. But some yeah. of this comes from hearing things that take us beyond what we already have thought and mm-hmm. being open. A lot of people when they're cutting loose with their spiritual search, but they want it to all be their own self-contained. But he invited us to consult with those who are wise. He invited us to listen to other people's experiences and explanations and if we think they're wise. And he said, don't just accept it, but put it into the cauldron of your experience and see if that also is true. So we can have our own experience and say, this I know is true. He said, but never saying this only is true. And that's why we get a little bit tripped up. You know, (laughs) we get a little bit tripped up either with our own perception of something is true or our own spiritual discipline or, or, you know, and we start to concretize and narrow and just uproot and eliminate possibilities. But to have that vast, spacious mind, it is to be able to hold one's own truth and then to also be able to take something else and examine it and see if it's true. It might be true for me, but but now is not the time for me to implement it or focus on it, you know. But in another time, I never thought I'd be sitting in this seat, you know, as a Buddhist. (laughs) I mean, you'd have to... It just wasn't even, not even possible, you know. And yet of my own accord, mm-hmm. you know, one day, just the scales fell. I needed yeah. more. So now they said, well, how did you leave Christianity? I don't really say that I left Christianity. I'm like on the path. You know, you can call it an anity. You can call it an ist. You can call it an ism. I don't really care. But those are just labels that we put on segments or our ways of identifying something. Now, that really has nothing to do with the real journey, does it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, this is awesome. I love this. So when we speak of the cries of the world, and for some reason in my perspective, it it feels like they're getting louder. It feels like the cries are getting deeper. They're getting louder. There's more people crying out. And I'm curious with this overwhelming sense of situations that we are amongst, how are some ways we can regulate ourselves emotionally, energetically, spiritually amongst our communities? Like it just seems like, as we live our lives, things get increasingly harder and harder. And sometimes they do get better, but it's like, what are some mechanisms that we can focus on? So the first thing is to line up and agree with what is true. You know, so the Buddha talks to us about how everything is impermanent. The whole nature of conditioning, oh, yeah. you know, existence is impermanent. Mm-hmm. You know, but he also talks about the most important is about nothing having its own intrinsic nature, you know. And Mm -hmm. Einstein, in his theory of relativity, he talked about that in a way. So if you're not spiritually inclined, but scientifically inclined, I mean, science is finding the same thing using its its own language. And so this present moment comes about through a number of intersecting actions and conditions 
And so it can't be any any way other than how it is in the moment by the ingredients that brought this moment together. If we don't mm-hmm. like what we're seeing in the moment, do something different in the next that's going to cause an intersection somewhere else. Yes. And that's what yeah. we have to remember. I, we, I know we think this is the worst time, you know, and things are getting worse and worse. Every generation <laughs> yeah, yeah. thinks that, you know, because oh, cause we're in burned it. Burned down. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. We're, we're in it at on? the moment. <laughs> but I, I could tell you, like, I know there's a lot of civil unrest around social injustice and yeah. And as a black person, you know, like I understand a lot of things, you know, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you as bad as things are today, they're not as bad as they were, you know, when I was a young person. I'm 70 now. When I was 17, it wasn't just a matter of... Oh, you look young, It wasn't just a matter of police beating you. Anybody white could beat you, you know? So, I mean, some things have definitely changed. And so it's that intersection of time, that intersection of the cultivation and development of patience, of knowing what is involved in change, of having some wisdom of how to bring about change, mm-hmm. having some personal discipline to know that that I also affect the present moment. And yes. sometimes when we are yes. feeling like uh, we are victimized, that we have no presence and no power in the moment. Mm-hmm. But these are all the ways that the study of the Dharma and the cultivation of the Dharma change how we see and how we understand uh, the present yes. moment. You know, and so the present moment for me is ripe with possibilities for equality and for change because mm-hmm. I can see that part. I yes. can see what it takes to create that, you know, and so I know it's a possibility for it. And whether we do or not, that's a different thing. Uh-huh. But to know that the possibility exists where one time I thought there's no hope and there's no answer. And so when the the cries of the world is just this, everybody's crying because of their greed, their hatred, and their delusion, you know, and they're stuck in Romans 8, the good I would do, I don't do, (laughs) what I don't do, what I don't want to do, I do. So I understand that because that's where my journey started in Romans Mm -hmm. 8. But now Mm -hmm. a lot of what I don't want to do, I just don't do it. And a lot of what I do want to do, I can do it. I'm able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. That's what I know. Yes. And I decide what I'll do. There's no external obstacle Mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. Would you say it's more of an internal obstacle? It's like your own way? Yeah. 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 I've noticed that when I've recently kind of been in a not emotionally stable place. I've been a little sad, I guess. And I'm trying to like get out of it. And what I've realized is the same decision making when I'm sad is going to keep you sad. So what I need to do is like when I'm having one of those moments, I need to decide otherwise. I need to. And the thing is, is I feel like that's where it's hard is to make that decision. So that's what I kind of hear you saying is like we always have an option to decide the other. And it might not be easy, but honestly, if you keep deciding the same thing that is getting you into that emotional hole, you're probably going to stay there. You know what I mean? So it's like taking ownership and not victimizing yourself. Yeah. You know, meditation is so important, particularly Mm. uh, training and concentration, how to steady and fix the mind until, you know, conceptual thoughts fall away. And we live so much in our conceptualizing nature that we can't imagine a life without that, you know. But when you start doing this practice, you find out that you can conceptualize and you cannot, Mm. you know. So learning how to drop into that stillness, and the Buddha calls it, until you come to the absolute stilling of all thought. We think, well, then there's nothing. Yes, there is something beyond that. You could never see it before because you were caught 
in the cycle of conceptualizing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other side, the other side of that is that, that the Buddha calls meditation a pleasant, abiding, here and now, mm-hmm. touching nibbana, that kind of contentment and peace that the world didn't give you so the world can't take it away. But what he called practice was something entirely different. So we yeah. need to do more practicing, and the practice is not to sit on the pillow. Sitting on the pillow is sitting on the pillow, but the practice mm-hmm. is how we handle ourselves in every moment of our waking day. When yeah. one is accosting you, taking what is yours, and one is criticizing you. When you're feeling bad about yourself, when you're feeling sad, when you have you know grief or covetousness for the yeah. world. And he says it's right then and right there, that's where you practice. And he gave us uh, four basic practices. He said, stop unwholesome states from arising. He said, neutralize unwholesome states that have arisen. He said, cultivate unarisen wholesome states and maintain wholesome states that are present. You know, and so that's a, that's a 24-7 practice, or at least take out the time you sleep. But the time that you're awake, I mean, you could be doing that all the time. And you don't have time for gossiping. You don't have time for worrying. You don't have time. Yeah. You know, if you're cultivating those four practices. So I'm constantly reciting the Dharma, which is the power in my life, yes. you know, to myself so that at a time that I'm confronted with something, you know, like that's not the time to try to get some Dharma. I mean, you need to already have some in you so that at that <laughs> yeah. moment you can use it. You can make a withdrawal from the bank. Uh, it's like being dropped in the middle of the ocean and, and you got to try to learn how to swim. Then it's too late. You're yeah. probably going to drown. But if I've been constantly on the side of the pool stroking, 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 then if I get dropped there, you know, if I can't swim, I can just lay back and breaststroke. I know that at least I'm not going to go under, you know, that the yes. buoyancy will hold me until I can do a little bit better. So it's it's like that. It's, it's, this is very yeah. pragmatic. I mean, yeah. it's more than pragmatic, but it is pragmatic. It starts with reasoning, mm-hmm. and we sort of like to end it with reasoning, you know, because we have such an intellectual pride. And he said, this is a pragmatic doctrine, but he said, but you're not going to be able to enter into the fullness of it by mere reasoning alone. And I think that's where we get a little stuck in the yeah. West, you know. So so we're uh-huh. missing something. So I have people that come to me and they've been meditating for 30 years and they've been doing mindfulness for 25 years. And I, I mean, they're still crazy after all these years. And Love so it. there is something else that's required in the practice. So we can't take one little thing and build a doctrine around it, you know, because it has a great breadth and depth that answers the cry of every part of us. Yeah. I was thinking, too, when you were talking about the reasoning mind, that might be the mind in which the ego is hanging out in. So it's like the ego is the thing, the mechanism that is reasoning. So it's got a reasoning in a way that assumes that it might be good for you, but ultimately it might not be good for the community, for the Dharma practice, for the application of being just a solid individual. So it's like you are able to reason yourself into things that don't serve you. And so that's why I feel like meditation is the getting you past the mind in which the ego functions. But understanding ego is a tool. Like I have yet to meet a person born without an ego. It is something you inherently have. Use it. You were given. It's a gift. Use it. But how does it serve you is what we're all learning. And so like calming the mind and and going past reasoning to find the thing that is where the Dharma lays, like the bright light. That's where the Dharma is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, It's so true. You know, that we have our, our conventional worldly wisdom and we have to use it. In world. I'm not going to look in the Dharma and figure out how to cross the street. I'm not going <laughs> to learn my ABCs or one, two, three from the Dharma. You know, so the, and it has its own job. 
talking, you know, so there's mm. spiritual language. And then, yep. you know, there's a conventional kind of language that we have applied to our, our worldly matters. But when we get these two mixed up, then we misunderstand and we uh, we misapply the remedies. You know, medicine yeah. is good, but if you're taking heart medicine for a toothache, you're liable to kill yourself with the heart medicine yeah. because that's the wrong medicine. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, and I feel like that's the hardest part of us is trying to figure out what medicine is the one that's going to heal our ailments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, ooh, this is fun. So a question that I was thinking about is, we talk about passion and compassion. To you, what is passion compared to compassion? <laughs> uh, so come with, with passion, you know, and that's a direct call of the heart. You know, that when the heart recognizes, when it's touched uh, with the feelings of in the infirmities of another. And with passion means you're able to respond to that impulse is more than just empathy, but you're able to respond to it with power. Yeah. You know, so there's a certain uh, <laughs> dudamus, there's a certain power that comes with compassion. You know, it's not, oh, I just feel so sorry for people all here in the hole, not go down in the hole and try to pet them up. Yeah, I understand. So don't come at me if you're down in a hole and expect me to get in there with you. My job is to pull you out. Or if you want to stay in, I can leave you in until you're ready, you know, to be pulled out. Yeah. Um, but it's not to get down in the hole with you. And I see a movement towards that, particularly as the Dharma gets mixed with psychology, and, and I'm all for psychology, but I don't think that the Buddha was teaching psychology. And so sometimes when we mix things in a different way, it starts to each very wonderful and great in their own places, but when you mix them together, it starts to dilute or shift the, the potential impact of, of either one, you know. So I have uh, people that come into the sangha all the time, and everybody has already self-diagnosed, and they've already diagnosed everybody else, you know. So they have a name for, <laughs> for what else, everybody, everybody. And uh, the, the Buddha was talking about, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is virtually a sickness of the heart, that mm. which is the true self, and that has been totally obscured because of yeah. the three, and sick because of the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah. And that's what he's unpacking. And a lot of this and unpacking that oh. takes care of all these other minor things that are going on that in your life and, the, and fixes the ways that you see things. Yeah. So yeah. the wisdom is a person comes and they think they want this or they think they're suffering because of that. And the teacher says, no, it's not because of that. Go in that direction. Look, mm. look over there. So a teacher-student relationship is very important. Yes. You know, one has to really have the, the capacity to hold a student as they undergo their inquiry. And the other yeah. is that the student has to have enough confidence and respect for and trust in the yeah. teacher. So there's a kind of affinity that has to mm -hmm. has to be there. Of course, you know, in <laughs> yeah. our day and time, we like to have a thousand people in the audience. And they say, oh, that's my teacher. He doesn't even know your name, you know. But, uh, oh, so-and-so yeah. is my teacher. You know, like we name drop it and all of that. <laughs> but when you're in trouble, you can't call that teacher. But yeah. there is something very sweet and very pregnant about a relationship between a teacher and a student. So we shouldn't try. Bigger and better is not, it's not good for everything. Yes. You know, I'm sorry that one snuck in. Oh, I, li I love else. it. You made me think <laughs> about something. So psychology is energetic mapping of the brain. And you were talking about spirituality being of the heart. And so it's like we can go on WebMD and diagnose ourselves and walk into a spiritual setting and be like, I'm... 
I'm psychotic or whatever. But actually, like, your heart is not psychotic. Your mind right. might be. And the thing is, is like we have the mechanisms to reconfigure what we need to to work in the way that the heart is built for. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, we're just discovering this with our science. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, the Buddha knew this in 500 BC. I know, what I know, you know, I mean, I haven't found anybody better yet. So, so bring me all <laughs> your science and bring me all your technology, and I'll show you where the the Buddha went to that Serious. and beyond. Yep. you know, 2,500 years ago. I, so. I mean, I've said it before, and I just gotta say it again. Science is now discovering what Buddhism knew all along. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's this thing where they've really tapped into the source and science is finding its way there. But they're uh, quantizing it. Yeah. They're like actually understanding the mechanisms of the quantum field yeah. and how energetic emotions and the way you are perceived is a wave and the whole quantum field is based and the observation on of it concretizes yeah. it. Yes, you know, so it could have been anything. It could, you know, you could turn it into anything too. That's mm. the thing. So, and and so we talk about faith. Not like Buddhism doesn't have faith, but Buddha talks about faith all the time. You know, in in this mm. way, in that very sense. You know, so regardless of what might be happening to me at the moment, you know, if it's something that's not useful <laughs> and beneficial, I'm thinking in another way that's uh-huh. going to ultimately impact that. And it's going to shift directions, or I'm going to shift in direction. One way or the other, it's going to get resolved. So I'm not that worried about it, you know. So the eight worldly winds are things that cause us to cry, you know, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, well, praise and blame. These eight things, our whole day, we're consumed with them. And it's always one or the other. Mm. And he said that when these scary things come about, my mind is agitated. But he said also when these very pleasant and happy things come about, mind is still agitated. You know, so either way, you've got (laughs) agitation. And when when that really becomes true for you, Mm -hmm. then you start looking to move towards that center place where there is just this kind of stillness. And you can take it either way it comes. The mind is agitated, but what type of agitation (laughs) are we going to have, you know, like... What is what's that cup of tea? Yeah, what, what, yeah. Kind of, what kind of tea are you drinking over there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's a space between these two, you know, extremes of agitation. And that's why he called his path the middle way. You know, but it's not like yeah. a lateral middle way because that would be like trying to see a forest through the trees. You can't. But if you go up and perch at the peak of the apex, then you look down and you survey, you can peruse the whole forest. So yeah. moving towards that middle way is not just a lateral move, but he called it the way moving upward. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so exciting for me. I never heard anybody even say anything like that about what the Buddha said. He called it the way leading up. But now what does that mean to you? You have to figure that out. I love it too because there's this honoring of everything exists. It's not it's not saying you have to be this, you have to be that. It's saying like I invite you to do this and everything else exists. Like you can be depressed, you can be angry, you could be excited, you could be ecstatic. There's like all these different various emotions that you can have at any one point that's what i loved about buddhism that's how i was drawn to it is suffering exists they're not saying like oh you know like look away from that it's like no that that's here that exists but like how do you filter that how do you deal with that is what i'm starting to realize that buddhism is a it's like a filtering process yeah 
Yeah. Uh, so people think, oh, Buddha, this is so sad. You know, it's talking about suffering, suffering. So no, he's talking about a way out of suffering. You know, because whether you recognize suffering or not, I mean, it's there. And the thing mm-hmm. is about misery is that misery does love company. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> we're saying that there is the truth of this basic unsatisfactoriness, but it has a cause. And whatever has a cause can have a cure. And I said, I can show you the way towards that cure. That's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. Ugh, I hear you. So when we talk about compassion, there's this feeling of it being fluffy and puppies and kittens and, you know, very like that. Is there ever a moment where compassion shows up as a fiery moment of intention? And Mm -hmm. when is that essential to have? So I like to think of it as fierceness, you know, that compassion is fierce. It has a fierce quality, Mm -hmm. you know, and that fierceness is what is not only the protection, but what is the source of its power to succor, to comfort, to deliver, you know, to save. So for me, compassion is always, it's always fierce. In that fierceness, we know how to handle because we're not battling the person. We're not even battling the thing that they're working with, you know, but we're destroying the delusion that allows or undergirds uh, that which causes suffering. We're destroying it capacity to exist. Yeah. And so it always takes a fierceness. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah, because... You know, it's like we we say this word compassion, and I think most people resort to the fact that it's like, oh, you got to be sweet, you got to be nice. But like, is being nice, being compassionate to the person, or being compassionate to the moment? Because if, sometimes if what the things moment are, calls for, that. yeah, it's like, you what know, does you the moment know what call the moment for? calls for? It, I think exactly, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so many times that niceness that we have has to do with our own blockages, our own places where we are suffering. And we're identifying with that condition, you know. Uh, we're uh, projecting on that condition. I see it a lot yeah. with white allies, and I love them. And, you know, but they'll be feeling worse over something than I am. I've been in this body for 70 years. Mm-hmm. I understand what this is, and I know how to process it and to make my way through it. I can't do that and hold you up, too, because you're, like, crying <laughs> all over the place because you're feeling so sorry for me. You know, so yeah. some of that, I see it a lot in the movement mm-hmm. that I'm really stronger than my allies. So first I have to stop and build up my allies so Mm -hmm. we can all march together, you know. And so that's an example of where there can be so much compassion in a way to want to support something, but it's also rooted in your feelings or your projection about it because actually you never really lived it yourself. You're like, I can understand. No, you can't. You can't understand what I've gone through. You can't. It's not even possible. Yep. You know, but what you think it is, that's causing the movement of your heart. Mm. Wow. That's why we need our discernment on point. Yeah. Because then we can decide in the moment what is going to be most skillful and beneficial of how things are going to move forward. Mm-hmm. Because we can't just be a compassionate pile of heap because that doesn't do anything really. You know? And sometimes it takes more compassion to hold your peace. You know, the Buddha said that mm. if a robber were to cut you to pieces limb by limb and you harbored any aggression or anger towards them, you would not be following my Dharma and my discipline. Ooh. Now, that's, that's a tough one there. That's where the bar is. So if you can uh, yeah. 
hold your peace when somebody is, you know, accosting you or calling you a particular name or making a reference to you in a derogatory way? Wait, does your ego in that moment want to be pacified or do you want to subdue the erroneousness, the erroneous appearances of the moment? How can yeah. how can you de-escalate that, you know? Mm-hmm. And right there is where we have to make that choice, yeah. where our pride won't let us, our ego won't let us, or how we can deconstruct that moment, yes. you know? And that takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of practice. And sometimes people cannot see that because they think that that's taking down. It might be living to play another day. You know, if I if I hold my peace and handle this, you know, I can basically just do what they say because they have a badge, you know, instead yeah. of saying I'm absolutely not. And then go and use our wisdom and our energy to approach that injustice in another way. Mm-hmm. It's not always going head to head with the confrontation in the moment, you yeah. know. So and particularly in times like this when everything is getting so tense and our answer is to strike out and rise up, but you can't fix a problem with the same mind that created it. So whatever mind is coming at you, if you go back at them with uh, that same kind of mind, we're not going to make that much progress. We our operating system of the mind needs to upgrade. Yeah, you know it's kind of like a computer. It's like those applications aren't going to work anymore mm-hmm. unless we upgrade. Well, you know when the conversation started in Buddhist circles, like you know, is this spiritual bypass? Is that what you guys are into? And that sort of thing. And <laughs> and you know, and and yeah. I looked at it. Not, uh, how do they come up with that? To me, spiritual bypass is having a certain standard for your conduct, but then when things get too tough, you can't operate in that. You resort yep. to something else. You know, uh, that's what spiritual bypass is to me yes it's not holding fast to what you really know to be true even though it might feel uncomfortable or it might not be satisfying the ego Mm. you know or it might take a little bit more patience and application to bring about the desired result i might not even see it in my lifetime i might just be sowing the seeds and somebody else is going to water and somebody else is going to get the increase you know Mm -hmm. and so it's a matter of knowing all of these things and it's spiritual bypass to me if we say, well, they're not listening, so maybe we just need to get out the club. Yep. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear you. Interesting you say that. Last year, I spoke with Lama Rod Owens, who uh, is all about social justice, Buddhism, and he was the Lens lecturer last year. And I had a podcast with him, and he talked about the same thing of spiritual bypassing. He was like, people do Buddhism until it feels good, and then they abandon the practice and that's what i'm hearing from you is like people use buddhism as this thing to feel good i meditate i feel great my mind isn't wandering and then a sticky situation comes up and they're like fuck Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. now what like oh wait this is too hard i'm just gonna gonna resort to whatever works for me and might not be the best morally best decision to make but that's what i'm hearing is is like that's when the dharma shows up because you know you become the Dharma. It's about the living Dharma, the embodiment of the Dharma. Yes. You know, yeah. And that's the only way that we can evaluate our progress on the path. If we are mm. it, if we are the living Dharma, you know, studying Buddhism is not cultivating. And <laughs> yeah. you know, so we have to continually being, allow a process of transformation to occur. Then after a while, it's not even a thought of what. When something comes up, you know, when it comes in like a flood, we just raise up a standard against that. And it's not always in a pushback way, but it, it's like a turning a reflection of it back upon itself. And it, it runs. The, I love there's a, a sutta that talks about uh, this king had gone off to, to battle and and he was losing. So he retreated. 
And the other group, they were going to just pursue him and go ahead and, and slay all of them. And the king got to a grove, and he said, there are so many wonderful beings in this grove. If we come into this grove, we'll bring this violence in here. Yeah. Rather than to disturb, then I'll give my life. And he turned around, and he went back mm. out to the field. And when the other king saw him approaching, they thought that they had met with some allies, and they were coming to slay them, and they surrendered. <laughs> I just love that story, you know, but it yeah. wasn't when he was thinking yeah. about himself, when he was thinking about self-preservation. It was when he was willing to lay down his life for those beings that lived in that grove. Mm. And so I think ultimately that's what we're called to. You know, we lay down the self yeah. and then we find that part of us that is unified with everything. Mm. Yep. So good. So you made me think about something like, the understanding the concepts of dharma isn't doing the dharma it's the actual application the practice of the showing up the the actions of that concept that is the dharma that's what i'm hearing from you at this moment is the practice is doing it's not knowing or thinking it's showing up and doing it is uh, my teacher bernie glassman you know he taught us three tenets he said you come not knowing you just show up you know, not knowing, not thinking you have the answer yeah. or the solution, or just bearing witness to what's there mm -hmm. and then responding with compassionate power. So if we would do that, instead of thinking we know what to do and how to do all the time, just showing up, yep. showing up and being in that still space so that you can have a penetrating vision of how to support what is good or what is wholesome. You know, when we see something that turns us on, that uh, makes us want to be a part of it, we just start running, you know. But he said, no, he said, just show up, bear witness to what's there. You know, don't let it find any place in you. Yeah. You know, good or bad, don't yeah. let it find any place in you. And from that place where you have no dog in the fight, mm. you know, then you can, can offer something to both sides. And so yeah. it's wonderful like that. The different kinds of works I participate in around the world, it was all done like that. I never set out to do anything. The work that we did with the homeless youth and so forth, it wasn't because I'd go out and find me three homeless people. No, it wasn't a thought like that. They yeah. like showed up. Uh, the situation presented itself in our city. Nobody wanted to deal with them. They said, oh, we know what to do for these young people. We'll build more jails. And they did build a bigger jail. Really? You know, but in my sitting and in my stillness, I found another way, a way of escape for those young people. Yeah. And that's how that program came about. With the, the nuns in Thailand, it's against the law for the monks to ordain or support ordination for women there. So everybody's writing letters all around the world, hundreds of thousands of letters, asking the monk council there to allow women to ordain. Actually, that was the Buddhist preference, right? And they're saying no, but I didn't bother to write letters. You know, I know something being a black person. They said, if you're a slave, be a slave. But if you see an opportunity, be a good slave. But if you see an opportunity for your freedom, take that. And so I wasn't going to write letters and say, please let them. Do. I just mm -hmm. went over there and started ordaining women. And so, you know, mm -hmm. we got 60 or 70 nuns in our monastery. And they're, they're spread out all over the countryside. Some live in caves and some monks are, are protecting them in their temples. But, you know, that's the kind of action that I'm talking about, yes. you know, with passion. Yes. You know, passion has a certain certain action mm -hmm. uh, that goes with it, but also a certain power to do, to accomplish yes. goes with it. And you don't even have to think about it, you know. It's unveiled to you, it's revealed to you what to do and how to do. And 
when I started Heartwood Refuge, they said, oh, she's buying this this 100-year-old hotel, totally dilapidated. Uh-huh. It'll take millions to fix that up. <laughs> We're not putting any money in that, you know. Mm-hmm. But I got it anyway, and I just mm-hmm. started with it. And now it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful retreat center. And, you know, and people are coming in. It's like an oasis in the desert because I'm in the, in the deep south, you know. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to go down there. They just sell you books, but they don't want to go down there. But yeah. now we have a place where we can begin to create living waters there that will relieve the suffering of the people there. You know, I, I just love it. And, and this way, it's not like efforting. You know, I don't have to spend any time thinking of something to do because I'm seeing all the time something is coming across the screen, yep. you know, and I can mm. look and see, is that something that I can do? Is that something I have the skill to do or I have the patience to do or I have the tenacity to stick with it until it's finished or, you know, what if I do and all other things being equal, I can pick it up. If I don't, I can see it and I can let it walk on by because yep. when the, the sound goes out, I'm not the only one that hears it. A lot yeah. of people hear it. It's just yeah. a matter of what you'll do when you hear the sound. Oh, my gosh. I actually feel like I can talk to you forever. (laughs) You just have this like really deep, knowledgeable, rooted wisdom. And I can just feel your love. I can feel your compassion. I can feel your drive for helping people and your drive for your own Mm. spirituality. And it just feels really good. I just feel like extremely rejuvenated just speaking with you. And it was such a beautiful conversation. Unfortunately, that is our end. Mm. And I just wanted to ask one more question. So if people are going to be wanting to know where to find you, internet, email, retreats, you did speak a little bit about the organizations that you do have. Can you just let people know how to find you? Uh, you can find me at hardwoodrefuge.org okay. or panyavati.org, P-A-N-N-A-V-A-T-I.org. Hartwood Refuge is the best site, okay. uh, though. And um, uh, there's a retreat calendar there, but there's also my personal calendar because I'm all over the all over the place, so... You can see yeah. where I am, maybe in your Spreading neck of the it around. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much. Oh, it was such room, a pleasure. This room is so pregnant with the Dharma right now, isn't it? You brought that. I mean, I have a, you know, I got like my little boot over here, little flags, but I mean, you bringing it. Thank you so much. Thank and you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. you know, I'm so happy we were able to reschedule. So thank Me you too. so much. So I'd like to thank our very special guests to the podcast and also the Naropa community, Venero Panyavati. She is the visiting lens lecturer, speaking her deep wisdom and just hanging out with the Naropa community. So thank you again. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.